welcome independent researchers, skeptics, and all of humankind, shadow citizens. Shadow Citizen will explore the shadows of an alternate reality. Your hosts, Rachel L. McIntosh. We made it another week. This is awesome. I'm Rachel L. McIntosh. I am your host of Shadow Citizen. I am thrilled to be with you guys tonight. And tonight I'm bringing you a very, very cool guest. Uh, the guy that I'm going to talk to, his name's Randolph Benson. And he said I could call him Randy. He is the director, producer, and editor of a film, a documentary film called The Searchers. And if you're not familiar with it, you should. You could should go over to their website, thesearchersfilm.com, and you can see a preview of the film. And it opens with um, Sympathy for the Devil. And uh, anything with Sympathy for the Devil, you're like, oh, this is going to be awesome. So I really recommend you go over to that website, check out the preview, and when it comes, you can order that and you can look. It's, it's great. Um, but the person I'm talking to is Randolph Benson, and he is – his work has been – he's gotten so many awards, it's crazy. Most notably, he got an Academy Award for Best Student Documentary at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Academy Awards. He also received an Eastman Kodak Excellent in Filmmaking Award at the Cannes Film Festival and his first appearances award at the International Documentary Film Festival in Amsterdam. He's now he's an uh, instructor of film and video at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. And he also is a judge for different documentary things. And with this, I'd really like to introduce Randolph Benson. Yay, Randy. Thank you for hey. coming on the show. Hey, thanks thank so much you. for having me. No, this is my complete pleasure. And thank you so much for allowing me to watch, you know, the full film. Um, that I watched it with my mother. And she, of course, was alive during the JFK assassination. What this film is about, just I don't know if I blew over that, but this film is about people that have um, basically invested their lives into studying the assassination of JFK. And the documentary work you did on them was just astounding because I didn't realize I know people are interested. It's kind of a fun thing to talk about at parties. You know, oh, did you see a. Uh, Oliver Stone's JFK and you kind of go back and forth, but your film really blew it out of the water. Wow. At least for me. Yeah. Thank you. The, uh, you know, it's about the researchers and, uh, um, yeah, I think they're the, some of the most interesting people I've, I've ever come across. Now, from your standpoint, as the director, producer, and editor of this film about these people that are researching JFK, what was your um, opinion of this whole thing in the, the beginning? Were you interested in JFK's assassination, or how did this get into your worldview? Maybe I'll do a film on these other these people. How? Yeah. how well, um, you know, I've I love history. Um, always been kind of a history buff. And uh, I've just always been interested in in different historical, major historical events, and that was certainly one of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, when 
you know, just like so many of us, when I saw the movie JFK, yeah, I was shocked that I didn't know so many things. Um, I I didn't know about the Garrison trial. Yeah. Uh, I'm with you on that because I didn't know anything about the JFK stuff, like anything. And for the longest time, I thought that film was kind of fictionalized. I mean, I'm kind of young. I'm not that young, but I'm younger than I wasn't alive when it was happening. And I honestly thought that JFK was a fictionalized version. And now, no, he was really trying to Oliver Stone is really trying to bring forth some weirdo stuff about this investigation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And um at the end, there's a title slide that that says uh, all the files are locked away till the year um, 2038, 2037, something like that. And uh, I just couldn't like so many other people, I couldn't believe that the files would be locked away that long. And um, and so that got me on the path to really reading as much as I could about about it and uh watching every video I could and talking to people and I you know I'd be the one to bring it up at dinner parties and that kind of thing and then uh and one of the questions that kept me thinking about the case was uh all the people who were writing these books and who were making the videos and you quickly learn that the lion's share of the research isn't being done by the media or government agencies. It's being done by just normal people. And uh, a lot of my work, um, the lion's share of my work, is uh, are portraits of individuals. And um, you know, I like I like people who you know, do things, do jobs that have to be done, but. Um, that people don't really pay attention to. So almost people who are pushed to the margins of society. And yeah. uh, I think that describes the life of the average researcher pretty well. Yeah. So you, you yourself was a research, you were a researcher. Oh, you got, no, I was a history, a, a history guy, a history guy. Okay. Yeah. And, and then these people kind of came up in your worldview as you started to look at, the, the scene around JFK's murder and and then you're like wow who are these people who are these people yeah and then um you know that was all throughout the 90s and you know then I went to film school and got really busy and pursued other things and then um and then I just got got back to it and and uh you know one day my um my girlfriend, uh, now wife, said, "Okay, look, you're <laughs> you need to either do this or don't do it." And so, uh, um, it was pretty cool. So I I had a uh, green light to to really look into it. And online, this was in the fall of 2001. I found online that there was a conference in Dallas. And it was a JFK Lancer conference. They had a really robust uh, web presence back then. And uh, 
I had no tell, idea. Tell, were tell people what tell people what JFK Lancer is because that comes up in this film, and I didn't know about this at all. What's JFK Lancer? Yeah, well, JFK Lancer has been around for I'm I'm not quite sure how many years, um, but since the 90s, and uh, it's a uh, it's a research organization, JF, JFK Lancer Productions and Publications, and they help researchers with um, getting their books published, getting their videos distributed. And, uh, and it's led by Deborah Conway and uh, they have conferences every year. Right she there. seems like, a, she seemed like a real superstar. I mean, like what, after I watched this film, I was like, that woman, gosh, darn it. She's driven. Oh yeah. And I think, you know, I think to do this, and to do it for as long as people have, you have to be driven. Mm-hmm. You, there's no, I mean, they're driven by something greater than themselves, you know? How many people, yeah, how many people do you think there, that are doing this, that are involved in this overall? I mean, we got a snapshot of some of the people in your film, but how many people overall, worldwide even, are, do you think are involved in this? Oh, on different, different levels, tens of thousands. But um, but there are a few um, groups that you know there are a number of of groups and um, there are made some major organizations um, for for a long time uh, the Coalition on Political Assassinations um, and the president the president John Judge who's the kind of the central character of my film. Yeah, he's he's a heavy set guy, and he would go into the pub and he'd be looking at the papers. And that guy, the John Judge guy, yeah, 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 mm-hmm. I liked him. He was great. Yeah, he's, and you know, John John was he passed away in um in uh, the winter of uh, fourteen. Oh no! Right after the fiftieth. Yeah, he's a he was a wonderful, wonderful man and a force of nature. He um he was uh, a passionate and longtime researcher. Started researching um, not too long after the assassination. There's a uh, the first generation researchers, and John always called himself Generation 1.5. <laughs> yeah, and uh, um. Yeah, and so there were a number of uh, organizations, and back when I started the film, um, I shot the first frame in uh, June of June tenth, two thousand two. Oh, but let me step back. The uh, I first went to to Dallas in November of two thousand one, and. Uh, Went to the Lancer conference and then, uh, someone told me that there was another conference going on across town. And that was the COPA conference, the Coalition on Political Assassinations. Mm-hmm. And so I got to spend time at both conferences and the first thing that struck me was the, was the, uh, the scholarly work that was being done. Um, I mean, it was, most of it at, at COPA was peer-reviewed research, and they were presenting, and a vibrant 
with a vibrant Q&A following and um and just it was really interesting and I didn't think I I don't know what I was expecting but I don't think I was expecting uh such high level academic work being done but that kept me thinking about it more and more and then I got a call saying that John Judge and Copa held every June 10th on the anniversary of JFK's peace speech at American University in DC they held a uh, a reading of the speech and a moment of silence to commemorate that speech and I'm here in North Carolina, so I grabbed my gear and drove up that morning and got there um, a few minutes before it started and introduced myself to John Judge, and he said, sure, come along, and I've been along ever since. That's awesome. So it took you about 14 years to put this thing together, right? Is that right? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh my yeah. gosh. So this is a, this is a lifestyle. <laughs> wow, yeah. that is incredible. Yeah, and in many ways, my my journey with this kind of mirrors the life of uh, the average researcher. Yeah. I don't think anyone expected to get to just start. No one expected to do this for us the rest of their lives. But you get going, and um, the more you learn, the more you realize that um, there's so much more to research, and almost to a person – the researchers I, I interviewed and have spoken with over the years all say that, you know, essentially someone has to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, they see I, that. I, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah Rob ahead. Clark. But Rob Clark from the Lone Gunman podcast that um, Shadow Citizen interviewed previously. By the end of his interview, I asked him, I said, you've been doing this for so long now. And it just so happened it was his very last podcast that week. He said, I've got to stop. And I said, you've been doing this for so long now. What, what's your opinion? Like, what, He goes, to tell you the truth, after all this time I've been researching it, I can't make up my mind. I was like blown away by that. I said, you got to be kidding me. And, but and it, it was, he's basically saying that when you go down this rabbit hole – you're getting yanked around so hard from all different direction. And is this like very – is basically the government or whoever it is trying to muck it up so badly that people just turn away from the thing? What What do you think that is? Why yeah. is this Why is this case so hard? Well, um, it's hard for a number of reasons. The um, – um, one thing I learned along the way is just how complicated it all is. And that might seem like a, a simple little statement, but, um, you know, because of the researchers, there have been 6.5 million pages of documents released. And that is, be, that is from peop, just normal people like you and me. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they're the ones going through those those documents piece by piece and um and so there's so much information there's so much information that's been withheld and uh um Andy Winarchik of the Last Hurrah bookshop that's he's in my film mm-hmm. he uh 
one of the things I asked him was, why are there so many books on the subject? And he had a great explanation, and I think it's very instructive for, for us to to really pay attention when he says, um, in many cases, a researcher will have worked, filed um, fr- uh, freedom of information request after request for years, and they finally get one little piece of information. And so based on that and previous information, they write a book. But then a couple years later, a little more about the subject is released, and that writer writes a book. So in many cases, these, you know, we need to look at all of the books almost as a series, mm-hmm. just a volume of the same book almost. Um, wow. And when you do that, it's based on information that has been trickling out that's and, you know, it wasn't it, – the information didn't come easily from the government. They fought every single piece. Why? Why did and they do that? normal people were why, – Why did well, the government try – like – Well, ahead. I think there's a – the government has a pension for secrecy just in general. But I think there were um, – more than anything, they are just covering their tracks. I think it's as simple as that. So do, and, you, think, uh, do you think our government w- was involved with shooting JFK? Or, like, this, I don't jump into the cut, into the chase right now, but when you look at the, the, the film you made that I hope everybody buys, you can go to the website, thesearchersfilm.com and you can buy the web, you can buy this movie or you can offer to show this film in your local area. It's really good. You got to check it out. It, it blew me away. In my opinion, it was it from after watching your film, it's pretty obvious that what the, the theory that they put forth during the trial about the one bullet going all around and shooting him and killing him. That's just, that's fake. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, all, um, what's been revealed in all the documents is that it's, it's very clear that, um, as many of the, you know, I trust the work of the, the work and evaluation of the researchers and uh it's you know john judge states it very very clearly this this came from the joint chiefs and uh and they use the intelligence um apparatus at their disposal and um within that there were many plans um operation mongoose where they worked with the mob to help get Castro and it was an assassination plan. And, um, in the end, most people think it was just turn in, turned inward. Mm. So, you know, the, the mechanism was already in place and, and, you know, um, I was having a, a big, uh, discussion. I had a screening of the film in Eugene, Oregon. And there was a great Q&A afterwards. And um, one of the things was, 
well, how will we ever know the truth? And, you know, I, I kind of said that we, the truth, you can liken it to a black hole. And we, we don't know exactly what the truth is, but we can interpret what it is by how it affects everything around it. Oh, that's a good way to put it. And so, you know, there were, there were stand down orders, nuclear code books were taken out of nuclear bombers on the 22nd. Um, you know, a whole, you know, and so there were only things that could be done by orders given at the level of the Joint Chiefs, for instance. Wait, wait, say that again. There were nuclear codes. When they found out the president had been shot, they like scrambled and did all this stuff and took t- – talk to me more about what you just said. Oh, yeah. Well, um, a lion's share of this research was um, – has been done – was done by John Judge and a longtime COPA – um, a co-founder of COPA, um, Bill Kelly, mm-hmm. researcher Bill Kelly from New Jersey. And uh, they found that on the 22nd of November, 1963, the day of the assassination, protocol dictate, dictated that when um, all nuclear bombers um, that were in the air they were to get their code books, um, the nuclear code books, because when a major event like that happens, everything's moved to high alert, right? Mm-hmm. Full alert. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when they opened the safes in the planes, the nuclear code books were gone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most, and that just doesn't, that doesn't happen. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I just kind of gasped right then. Yeah, that shouldn't happen at all. And so, you know, the the meaning of that is that they didn't want – they were ordered to be removed and so that there wouldn't be an accidental nuclear war. Um, okay, okay. And uh, actually, I haven't told this story – I've only told this, this story to uh, a few researchers, but – well, we're listening. Just we're listening. Go me, ahead. I'll share it with you. <laughs> so my father was a um, my father was a fighter pilot um, during the Cold War. We were he was stationed in Germany, and in fact, I was born there. And he was part of the fighter interceptor squad. So it was his job in his in his squadron to fly up and down the east west German border, and shadowing the Soviet MiG. And so they would fly up and up, up and down and up and down. At the end of their shift, they would peel off and two other jets would assume the same dance going up and down. And that happened 24 hours a day, every day for the entire Cold War. So um, my dad, the we lived there for... I think eight or ten years. Um, I was really small when we left. Um, but on the day of the assassination, um, well, my dad would always say, if anything happened, if anything happened, 
he would be scrambled. He was on the front line of the Cold War. He was on um, full alert for the entire eight years so that his jet was always running. It was always fueled. And he could be in the air in 15 minutes. Wherever he was, he could be in the air in 15 minutes. So when de Gaulle was the assassination attempt on de Gaulle, um, he was scrambled. And um, during the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis, he was in the air the whole time. But when Kennedy was assassinated, he was at dinner in the officers club with my mom and they didn't find out. No, they weren't scrambled at all. Interesting. And so my dad, from that moment, my dad said, this just isn't right. And he never voiced it um, officially that I know of to any of his superiors. But he said, it just protocol doesn't break down at that level because it just doesn't. If, if it does, people die. A lot of people die. So it never does. And so when the president was assassinated and he wasn't scrambled, he knew that something was up and he knew the only people who could, who could, um, keep him from being scrambled that they were at the top of his uh, chain of command. And so most of those guys, they knew it. They just looked at each other and they knew exactly what had happened. But, you know, they didn't talk about it. My dad didn't tell me about it until I had already started this movie. Wow. And uh, not long before he died. And, um, you know, I was shocked when he told me that because he – he was in World War II when he was 17 and he was in Korea and, and, uh, was a flight instructor for Vietnam and he was in the Cold War. And, uh, and for a guy like that to, to say that to me was, was, uh, very telling. Yeah, monumental. So when, oh yeah, it's monumental. In a, in a, in a way, it kind of, connects you even more with your dad and the work that you're doing that's that's a, actually that's an awesome story yeah yeah it is it's uh um he still wouldn't you know when i asked him what do you think happened he he just wanted to move on he didn't you know i think even for him till the day he died he just didn't want to believe that that um that his government that he fought for on multiple wars spent his life doing that they murdered the president, his president. Right. Well, it, it, well, this is a good question. I don't know. Is it just the CIA or is it the government or is it the shadow government or what would you chalk that up to? Well, I think um, one thing I learned from John Judge and and a lot of other people was that um, the intelligence 
the intelligence operation um, in the United States is massive. And in fact, the CIA is one of the smaller intelligence agencies. Um, John would, would say often, um, you can find a thousand books on the CIA, but try, try to find me two on the DIA. Yeah. Right. Defense and, Intelligence uh, Agency. And, right on. And it has a bigger, a bigger black budget, um, with no oversight. It's multiple times larger than the CIA. The ONI is massive. The Office of Naval Intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, um, he told me once, and, and in fact, I interviewed him, and he told it on film. I, it's not in my film, but it's in the box sets. That uh, you know, there are roughly thirteen to fifteen different intelligence agencies, and the CIA is one of the smaller. So I think when people talk about the CIA killing Kennedy, I think the proper th- way to look at it is, um the intelligence community okay. was complicit in the murder of John F. Kennedy. Right. So, um, but there were so many things that went on that day on the 22nd and before and after that only, only orders from the Pentagon could take care of. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that they operated Operation Mongoose. They are responsible for Operation Northwoods, which is a document I, re- I have in my film. Um, that document, oh, the that uh, stand North- down order. Yes. Yeah. The yeah, Northwoods. Yeah. I was going to say the Northwoods thing keeps coming up in different, different interviews I'm doing with people. Northwoods tends to crop up with 9 11 research. It sure does for, for good reason. It's, um, it's a shocking document and it's been called the most horrific document ever produced, um, by a government, let alone our government. Yeah. It's, so can uh, you tell us what, what it's about for people that are listening. Yeah. Well, it's a document, um, that was written by, um, Lyman Lemitzer, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Um, and presented to Kennedy and in it, it detailed, it detailed things that we could do to rally support by the American people for a full scale invasion of Cuba to oust, um, Castro. And some of the points that are, uh, that are listed are crashing a plane, um, of, um, an, an American plane, blaming it on Castro, orchestrating riots in the streets, um, and blame, blaming it on, um, pro Castro, um, protesters, um, murders, um, and, but, but for most people, and what seems most relevant now is the, uh, is the um, crashing of a plane a long and part of the crashing of a plane 
is sending fake casual casualty lists to newspapers. Yeah, yeah. of American citizens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can see why that comes up when people are talking about 9/11. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's yeah, it's it's shocking. And when Kennedy received it, he he was furious, he reacted um he was furious and told Lemonster he was insane, he was crazy and it had never happened and he told him just um stuff it basically. So, oh, but, I, well, I, I didn't know that part. He was anti-Northwoods, that whole operation. And do you think that's what maybe oh. got him on the list? Well, um, you know, I think the why, you know, like in the movie JFK, um, the Donald Sutherland character says it perfectly. The why is what really matters. And um that's answered perfectly in Jim Douglas's book, um, JFK and the Unspeakable. Mm-hmm. He, uh, but that was his, him putting, um, standing up to the Joint Chiefs, especially during the Cuban Missile Crisis, was one probably the first nail in his in the coffin. And most people think the last nail was the JFK. Peace speech at um, American University in June of '63, and that's where they have that um, um, memorial that you were the, talking about. The memorial that yeah, you were talking they about. Do. Okay. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a uh, uh, to give give that speech a l- another listen. Um, it's an incredible speech, and especially. If you, uh, read some of the history of, of, uh, Kennedy's thinking in the years leading up to that, um, it's, it's amazing. And the greatest, for me, one of the greatest things about making this film was just learning more about what an amazing leader he was. You know, yeah. like, like so many other people, a very flawed human being, but, um, but in terms of leadership and vision and um, trying to lead the country away from war and to peace. And uh, it's, it's incredible. Plus I didn't know about the, um, before I started this project, I didn't know about the, the canon of literature that are the letters between Khrushchev and, and Kennedy no, neither did I. So go and ahead, he, talk about this. This is fascinating. What was he doing? It's incredible. Yeah, well, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, they that was the beginning of the warming of the of the Cold War, and both Kennedy and Khrushchev were surrounded by hawks, people that wanted war, that wanted to wipe the others off. But they somehow formed um, not a friendship but a kinship um, towards peace. And in his in the final year of his life, Kennedy had talked about um, stopping the moon race and to collaborate with the Soviets to go to the moon and to explore space. 
um, he had, he had, uh, they had talked about, he had already signed the, um, nuclear test ban treaty with Cuba. I mean, with, um, the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the letters can be found at the, uh, JFK library. Um, you know, you can get them online. It's, they're amazing letters. And that web, is that, you said you get them online. Just go to jfklibrary.org or is there a special place to look for them? Yeah, I think it's just uh, jfklibrary.org. Okay. It's the, you know, presidential library. Okay. And, uh, and, and I, I saw here that, what it says, that all these records are supposed to get released on what, October 26th of this year. A bunch of them, yeah. or, or some of them, or all of them, or there's going to be a new well, dump on them. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the, uh, in the wake of that title slide at the end of J- the movie JFK, mm-hmm. um, that initiated public outrage that the, uh, that the documents had been locked away. And because of that, Congress formed, and, uh, Rob, Rob talked about this uh, in his interview that formed the uh, got the JFK Records Act passed and by Congress and uh, President Bush signed it. Um, Herbert Walker Bush. Right. And uh, because of that, they they then formed the Assassination Records Review Board, which. They, they were tasked with determining which documents could be released immediately and, um, and to release as much as they could over time. But then all documents, regardless of whether they went through, through them or not, had to be released 25 years after, um, the JFK Records Act wrapped up and that happens on October 26th of this year. So by law, all documents having to do with the JFK assassination from all the, from all institutions of government have to be released. Um, and there are, there are an estimated, um, the, the CIA has already released, um, around 50,000 documents and they said that um, they'd released 90% of what they have. So a lot of people speculate that there there can be upwards of 50,000 documents just from the CIA. And that's not, you know, we're not talking either about all the other um, organizations. the DIA, the NSA, all the military branches of intelligence, um, the Pentagon. Um, and as you saw in my film, and what what is the most shocking, one of the most shocking things, is that the Secret Service, after the JFK Records Act was signed, all departments were ordered to not destroy any documents, to maintain them, to get them ready for release, to hand over to the review board. But the Secret Service destroyed them all. 
figures. Figures. And why now why would they do that? They're supposed to be covering like they're they're on top of the president all the time. They would be the first hand knowledge of what happened. Of course the Secret Service, I just discovered fairly recently, well, was part of the Department of Treasury. That's that's really what they they came from until we got the Homeland Security thing set up and then they got swooped over underneath Homeland Security. But they were always part of the Department of the Treasury. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. <laughs> that but, might uh, say something too. That does. But. I think it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they uh um I forget what were what were we Oh, the so the yeah, secret, secret service. service in the uh on the front page of the final report of the Assassination Records Review Board, they note that the Secret Service destroyed all of their documents before breaking breaking the law, breaking a congressional order. But that happened. They found out in within the first year of the uh, within the first days of the of their existence, and the review board had to decide whether they were going to make a big stink about it and possibly have the entire review board shut down or worse compromised. So they noted it in the report and didn't make a big stink about it, but it's right there in the report. And I, and I, I have it in my film. I show the report yeah. in my film. Yeah. Your fil- I, I, I can't even say how awesome your film is. It's really good because it's not going straight on for the JFK stuff. It's it, Well, it's obvious all about JFK, but it's going through the lens of these people that are researching it. And it's it's not trying to convince you of one thing or the other. But by the end of it, you're just convinced that nobody has a real story. And thank God we have this community of people that are just driven to find the truth. And you brought up a good point in your movie that the government made a big deal about the term conspiracy theorist and how that was used to kind of demonize what they were doing. Do you want to talk about that for a little bit? Absolutely. Um, So in my film, I, um, I present and uh, as of the release of my film, the it's a CIA document 1035, 960. And, uh, this document, um, was written by the Psychological Operations Unit of the Central Intelligence Agency. And it noted it was entitled Countering Criticism of the Warren Report. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, in it, it lists point by point how to how to address critics of the Warren Commission. And it, it, uh, it says that, you know, call them communists, um, call them, uh, financially motivated. And it says, uh, more than the, the biggest thing is label them conspiracy theorists. And, uh, that right there is the entomology of those two words being joined at the hip. That's the first time 
the term conspiracy theorist enters American lexicon. It's amazing. It's amazing because um, one of my kids' teachers came up to me. I think it was the English teacher or something. She heard that I was what I was doing, you know, with my books and my radio show, and she's like, "I'm trying to understand. Are you a conspiracy theorist?" I said, "Well, <laughs> I, I I don't think so, but I'm just." I'm talking to people that are trying to figure out what's really going on in the world, but I guess I brushed shoulders with a lot of quote unquote conspiracy theorists, but it was interesting that she used the term and I wasn't sure if she meant it in a derogatory way or if she thought it was how she was using it. If she thought it was really somebody that was doing work, she, that it confused me because of how she approached me about it. Yeah. Well, I, I can all but guarantee that she did mean it in a derogatory way, <laughs> whether she actually meant to or not. That's what I mean. She, she's a good yeah. person. I don't think she would have done that to like hurt my feelings or anything. But goodness gracious, I was really surprised that she used that term. I was like, well, no, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I'm open to hearing about things that conspiracy theorists talk about. I sure am. Yeah. Well, you know, John Judge had a had a cool little phrase. He'd say, you can call me a conspiracy theorist if you let me call you a coincidence theorist <laughs> that's perfect that's perfect right yeah. perfect maybe uh, that's what i should say too but I you know like, i yeah, go say, ahead, I'm, I'm sorry i keep interrupting you no that's all right i'm interrupting you you're the guest you got <laughs> you got the floor you go um i'd like to just i call myself an institutional analyst Good you one. know and we all we're looking at at the record, we, we're looking at documents, for instance, that are released from these agencies and reevaluating um, the facts to come up with the next plausible explanation. You know, it's not it's not like we're just positing things and, you know, pulling them out of the air. There there are only a few places in our government, for instance, that can have the code books pulled from nuclear um, nuclear war plans, nuclear bombers. And so, you know, for that's an example. So when when someone when that's been proven, now you have to ask, well, why would why would they do that? And. When that happens a thousand times, then you start to see a much larger picture of how it happened. And I think that's that's one of the great things that, you know, the, the real researchers, the real academics and investigators, and that's what they have uh, revealed. And their method, that's why I said earlier, that's why I trust their method. Right. Um, now, now, you brought up psychological psychological operations over at the CIA um, as a, a real thing. Like somebody's literally sitting down, probably has a degree in psychology and all different things they're probably studying, and they figured out a way to, to kind of mess people up, to get all fugazi on people's minds. Um, now, of course, when I, I currently go online and I'm looking at things like Sandy Hook or I'm looking at things like 9-11 or I'm looking at things – there's definitely people that are inserted into these conversations that are coming out with just ridiculous stuff just to screw up people and make – if you're now in that conversation with that person, with other people, 
now you get glommed all together is completely crazy. Now, that sort of insertion of like the crazy, really crazy people, who knows? Maybe they're not really crazy, but that's the, that's the thing that I keep bumping up to is that like right now, the, you know, you're in a conversation that somebody's really put some deep thought into when the flat earthers start showing up. So like that's kind of the that's that's kind of the like okay now we we know we've bothered somebody the flat earthers are in here. Yeah, yeah. And you know, um that is that is part of the strategy of of our ruling institutions. You know, and there's no better way to to marginalize a group than calling them um you know devotees of little green men or Bigfoot or they don't, you know, they believe in a moon hoax or the flat earth. And, uh, yeah. you know, they faced it forever. And, and most of them just brush it off and continue their work. And during the day, continue their law practice or their medical practice or, School teachers or insurance salesmen, whatever. Um, well, these people are just, they have lives. They have, they're doing other things. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. There was a bunch, who's the lawyer? Was that Mark? No, that was Mark Lane. He was a, an author. He was good. Who is yeah. that man? Um, Malcolm Perry. That guy. Dr. Malcolm Perry was the guy, um, who had originally said, that he 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 he, he was doing yeah. an autopsy and he saw the pre-existing bullet hole in front of the throat and that's when um that man I think it was Josea Thompson is that how you say his yeah. name Josea Josea Thompson he's the one that saw that comment and walked into the office and said I don't think that's the case and that was very that was very telling too that was excellent. Talk about that that situation. Josiah yeah, Thompson. Well, yeah, he's um uh Josiah his nickname is Tink. Josiah Tink Thompson is a um he's a really interesting man. He he got his doctorate in in um philosophy. Um he was Ivy League, I think he went to Yale and uh and then he was teaching teaching philosophy at Haverford College. And uh and he ended up giving that career up to become a private eye. Which which I think is really funny. It's really, really cool change of careers. Um but I always thought it was interesting wrote, to be a private eye. I really did. I always thought that would be really cool. But yeah, then somebody yeah. then somebody and told he, me you're just going looking at people like having sex, you know, against their wives or you know, like people having affairs and stuff and it gets really depressing. I was like, Okay, I won't be private. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Be careful what you wish for kind of thing. Yeah. Um Yes, but he uh he wrote one of the early books. He was he was an early, early researcher, one of the first generation. He wrote a book called Six Seconds and um Six Seconds in Dallas. And it was one of the first um, investigations into into the assassination. And it's still – that book still holds up. 
and it helped. It was one of those very first books, along with Mark Lane's Rush to Judgment, um, Vince Salandria, who wrote a number of of uh, essays and articles that are now part of a book called um, False Mystery, which I highly, highly recommend. But these early, early researchers were the ones who uh, who just started asking questions from the very beginning, finding those inconsistencies. And the one you talked about that, that Josiah Thompson found, he was reading the New York Times and there was the article that um, quoted Dr. Malcolm pa- Perry saying that the throat wound was a wound of entry. And, you know, the Dallas doctors were the first ones to see Kennedy. And I think we all know that doctors in Dallas then and now have a lot of experience with gunshot wounds. And, uh, but then Life Magazine had just released frames from the Zapruder film. And they said that the shots came from behind. So Josiah Thompson took that copy of Life Magazine in and that copy of the New York Times in, walked into his local FBI office and and brought that to an agent's attention. And as, as uh, Tink says in my film, he said, yes, young man, thank you very much, and threw it in the trash can. <laughs> but that was the beginning of a research career. Right there, right when he got spat on, basically, for pointing out the obvious. Uh-huh. Yep. Wow. Yep. And, uh, and, you know, that was days after the, after the assassination. So the Warren Commission hadn't been, had just begun their, their work. Nothing had been released yet. Right, right. Man, that's something. Now, I, the listeners that are still listening to us, I hope you're enjoying this. This man that we're talking to, Randolph Benson, and his film, The Searchers, is, it's an incredible piece of documentary work, and I highly recommend you check it out. Go to the website, thesearchersfilm.com, and I'll see you after this break, and we'll keep talking. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be right back. All right. Okay, we're back for our second hour. We're with Randolph Benson. He is the writer, director, producer of this film called The Searchers. And he was with us last hour, and he shared a really fantastic memory of his father with us. Um, And if if you didn't listen to the past hour, go go back to the archive sections at um, AmericanFreedomRadio.com, or we're also on Vimeo. We're also at SoundCloud. We're at BitChute. And now we're on iTunes, so you can look for us there. Um, so I'm going to welcome back um, our guest, Randy Benson, and he's going to tell us more about his his film, which is excellent, The Searchers, which is about – I'm going to tell you what it's about. The Searchers has is all these interviews and archi- archival footage and recently declassified documents, and it chronicles the past and present of ordinary citizens and their contributions to revealing the truth about the 
the crime of the 20th century, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And Randy, are you back with us? I am indeed. All right, right on. Thank you so much once again for being on the show. I am so excited to have you on the show with us. This is awesome. Thank you. Now, I was looking at your website, thesearchersfilm.com, and there's this little tab at the bottom. It says Dig Deeper, which, of course, I'm apt to do. And I saw that there was a center for deep political research, and then there was Hidden History Center. These are two things that I think people should know about. These are pretty cool. Can you talk about them a little bit? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'll start with the Hidden History Center. Um, John Judge, it was his dream to have a a museum of hidden history in Washington, D.C. to offer um, a different version of history than we're being taught um, based on all of his research over the years. And not just his, based on all of the research and different different facts and then have been presented, um, um, similar to um, later, Oliver Stone produced a series for Showtime called "The Untold History of the United States," and he covered many things in that that um, John would have included in the. Uh, in the museum, but after he died, his his uh, partner Marilyn Teninoff, um, along with some terrific researchers, Dave Radcliffe and uh, um, Joe Green and others, have uh, formed the Hidden History Center to maintain John's documents and to collect to collect more. And right now, it's located in York, Pennsylvania, and it's very worth um, everyone's time and effort to learn more about um, the Hidden History Center's uh, work and their mission because it's something that we all need to need to be part of. You know, we need oh. the real facts and real documents out there. I love that. I love that. I, I homeschooled my kids up until sixth grade and we used a curriculum called Story of the World. And that blew my mind because that curriculum included things that never showed up in the history books that I had at school, even in high school. They're talking about stuff that literally blew my mind. And I highly recommend people not just believe what is taught to you in school. And I'm really excited about this Hidden History Center. This is fantastic. What's the other one that's on your webpage is the Center for Deep Political Research. What's yeah. that about? Well, this is a, uh, it's a recently formed, um, in the last, in the last year to 18 months. It's a new think tank and, uh, of young, younger researchers, kind of the next generation, um, current to next generation to, uh, to provide a, a venue for journalists and researchers to, disseminate um, new research into deep state orchestrated events from the past and um, and as they arise it's uh, um, I'm proud to be to be part of this group it's a uh, it's a 
um, nonprofit corporation, and uh, we encourage people to to learn more about the work that we we will do. Um, you know, and this is part of um, you know part of something that that I wanted to be involved with um, after years of working on this film because you as your as your listeners know and as you and many other people at AFR know that once you get going in this you you kind of if you look in the mirror at all you can't turn it off you you have to keep moving forward and uh and so the CDPR is is part of that and there's some amazing researchers um Joe Green who who's written a a number of books, but his dissenting views series is is really impressive. And um, and Jeff Worster is the uh, founder and president, um, terrific researcher. Rich Bartholomew, um, Leslie Sharp, these are all longtime researchers who are younger and are doing um, amazing work. And we need, you know, we need. We can't rely on the guys who are the men and women who are in their 50s and 60s and 70s to stick around forever. It's time the next generation um, picks up the, the mantle, you know. Yeah, the torch there and carry it for, further. Are you familiar with Daniel Sheehan? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That guy is like my hero. I love him. And have you listened to his uh, – I've listened to the um, – he does – he teaches and he's there's a series of the videos of him teaching about how the United States government and the deep state. And it's very, very interesting. And I aged every time you were talking, I started thinking about him and how he, he what his opinion would be of the JFK murder based on what he knows about how the deep state emerged from basically really different elements that some people would call the Illuminati from way back when, how it emerged and became part of the, the U.S. government here in the United States. And this our central intelligence stuff all sort of started. It's it's just interesting if anybody wants to go check him out, Daniel Sheehan. Well, he's uh, – um, I filmed a conference for the um, Coalition Against Political Assassinations um, – this is an organization that that um, um, kind of grew to fill the void after the coalition on political assassinations had to wrap up after John after John Judge passed away um, just for a variety of legal reasons. Um, COPA um, its charter had to be wrapped up, and out of that, a number of organizations have have helped to fill that void one of them was um uh the coalition against political assassinations and they had um along with kappa along with um the assassination archives research center in washington dc run by jim lazar a uh, freedom of information act lawyer um, they had a, a, uh, 50th this anniversary. I can't hear you at this moment. I didn't hear you. I lost oh. you at 
I, I lost you at um, Lazar. That was the last thing I heard. Oh. So, yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm sorry. This, no, that's okay, because this is kind of an ongoing thing with Shadow Citizen. Whenever we start talking about something really important, our Internet or Skype or whatever this is goes completely batty. And so I'm kind of giggling, but I'm glad it's on your end, not mine this time. Usually it's my end. But so st- tell me again, start with this L- Mr. Lazar that you were starting to talk about. Yeah, well, um, he runs – Jim Lazar runs the uh, Assassination Archives Research Center in Washington, D.C. And they do amazing work with um, freedom of information requests um, and a, a lot of his work. and In fact, most of his work is about um, the JFK, RFK, and MLK assassinations. And, uh, um, in 2014, in September of 2014, they held a conference in da- in, in Washington, D.C., in Bethesda, actually, to, it was on the Warren Commission on the 50th anniversary, and Daniel Sheehan was one of the speakers. Um, it was very, very interesting, and, uh, um, if I'm not mistaken, he's a constitutional lawyer and yes. is very involved in in um, in helping get documents released. And um, so, you know, he's in real terms. He's uh, he's an excellent, excellent lawyer, and he's done a lot of work for a lot of people helping to get documents released. And he's yeah. an excellent researcher himself. Yeah, he's and he's so smart. Oh, my gosh, the man is so smart. Um, yeah, I think people should definitely look this guy up if they're not familiar with him. Just do a YouTube search for Daniel Sheehan. He's really – I'm going to try to get him on the show too. But back to what you're talking about, your stuff is out of control good too. This is your filmmaker. When did you start doing films? For like, When did you get this bug to start making films? Oh man. Um, well, I've always kind of had the bug, but, um, I'm not, I wasn't one of those kids who grew up with a camera in his hand. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and so I, you know, went to, I went to a college and graduated and didn't know what I wanted to do. So I traveled for a couple of years, um, and came back and just got a job just to start paying off student loans and, start trying to build a career. And so I was a buyer for a chain of music stores. Um, compact oh, that's, discs. A, that's a wicked cool job. I wish I had that job as my first job. That's cool. It it was, but it was also just sitting at a desk crunching numbers. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it sounds, sounds cool. It sounds cooler best. than it is. <laughs> just like the private detective job that I, I thought would, would never be use. cool. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. Yeah, so I would never use, I would never even use a band's name. I would always refer to their UPC number. Right. <laughs> right. So maybe that's how I wanted to ask you too. I'm going to, we'll cream back into this, but how you got sympathy for the devil for your, um, for your promo of the movie. How did you get that? Well, you know, for a trailer, um, it's used under fair use because I use so little of it. Oh. You see, so well, YouTube I can't, has 
YouTube has taken me down for less. That's for sure. Oh, wow. That's great. That's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to, um, if they take you down, you can make a case to them like, and cite, cite different, um, um, different legislation and codes within the fair use, fair use um, realm. Um, but yeah, I was, I was at, I was a buyer for a chain of music stores and one day I just snapped and I was like, I just saw, just saw the head buyer for our company. He was in his sixties and he was miserable and that's where I was headed if I didn't make a change. And I literally snapped one day and, uh, called up my boss and said, this was in April of 90, 93. And I said, I'm, I'm going to film school in the fall. Um, so I'll be quitting. I don't know where I'm going, but you need to find my replacement. And that was it. And I researched film schools and basically we get one shot at life and I wasn't going to spend it at a desk. Um, punching numbers. Oh, and you, you, what do you call them? You, what'd you call them? UPS yeah. codes? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh well, good. That's awesome. UPC. I'm glad. Yeah, UPC codes. You said no more. Oh, I love that story. That's great. So I you, literally you, snapped. you snapped. Yeah. I think, I think it's good when you have those moments where your body just says, look, and your spirit just says, look, you can't do it anymore. You got to do something else. You're on this planet to do something else. And do you feel that you've, you found your calling because you're really doing well. I see all these little um, laurel leaves with winner, you know, the different years of the films that you've worked on. What's another film besides this one? This one, of course, is excellent. The Searchers. Um, what's another favorite film that you've worked on? Well, I made a film called Man and Dog um, a while ago. It was a portrait of an animal control officer, a dog catcher in a small North Carolina county. Um, and it, uh, it tells the story of, um, it reveals the horrible, um, conditions of, that we've created for domesticated animals because of our lack of spay and neuter laws. And it tells that story through this one guy who is tasked at, at rounding up stray animals. And if they don't get adopted at the end of the week, he has to kill them because <gasps> the next week, 30 or 40 more dogs will come in. And, wow. uh, well, that sounds really depressing. It is. is there, I was going to say, is there like <laughs> at the, at the end of the film, is it like, Oh, d- how does it leave everybody? It, it, it's, it leaves everyone really depressed. Uh, <laughs> basically. But I think it's well made and it's, and you know, one thing, the key to that film though is at the end of the movie, I, I give people the information that we have, um, I think, I think the, when I made it, the, the figure was 6,300 animal control officers in the United States and each one of those animal control officers has to kill 34 animals 
um, a week. 7.5 million animals are killed every week. Um, I mean, every year in the United States. Wow. So that, yeah, that's that. Yeah. And it's just because we we in America see um, see animals as possessions as opposed to members of our family. I mean, not everyone, but as a society, we've made that choice. And there are people, human beings, that we ask to deal with the consequences of that choice. Yeah. And thus, the portrait of um, Pete, my uh, animal control officer. And, you know, you can kind of see a parallel from that with researchers because mm-hmm. they, they do a job that has to be done. It's critical that that job is done in, in society, but they, they do it being called conspiracy freaks and being marginalized and some getting fired from their jobs, some um, being threatened. Yeah, somebody somebody in the film said they've had to uh, deal with car bombs, and they said, "Well, that means they're really doing their job." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that I was like, that says it right there. If somebody's that pissed off with you poking around the records to bomb your car to let you know to stop what you're doing, you know you're doing something. Yeah, absolutely. Have you had any problems yourself, other than the this Skype conversation where? It, goes in and out every once in a while but have you had any problems yourself with this film well um a few weird things but um oh no me, tell tell us about them tell us about them the weird things. are you sure you want to hear them yes yes <laughs> we're way into it go well um just in terms of filmmaking um generally when when you make a film that um that wins awards that other people find value in and it gets distribution and, and, uh, makes, makes money for a distributor or a network. Generally, it's easier to get your next fun, your, your next film made. So man and dog sold to, um, a cable channel and, uh, it was, the domestic rights sold and then the the uh rights for France and Germany and Poland sold so you know i figured that it would be no problem getting getting my next film uh at least the initial stages funded or supported in some way but when you know all of these people wanted to hear about my next project and when i told them that i was thinking about making a film on um, these people who are doing all this scholarly work to find the truth behind the assassination of Kennedy. Um, they first asked, well, is this going to be kind of like Trekkies where it's mm-hmm. just kind of a funny subculture and kind of poking fun? And I said, no, it'll be more like man and dog where I really get in and learn and, because the people I've met so far are genuine, smart, normal people. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it was crickets. Just never heard anything from anyone. Couldn't get calls taken. And uh, I don't think it was 
I don't necessarily think it was anything more than institutional fear that, you know, these networks, they don't want to touch difficult subjects. Well, some of these networks already have the, the narrative already implanted. For instance, the History Channel, right? They already got what they they've been pushing a narrative for a while. Oh, yeah. Tell and, us about that. Tell us about that. Oh, yeah. Well, um, there's a whole section of my film that deals with um, the deals with the media organizations and how they covered the assassination. And from the very beginning, everything was all about how it was a lone nut, uh, commun- former communist, and uh, and that was all to the story. That was all there was to the story. But later, we found out, partly through the um, through the uh, that CIA document that I mentioned before. There's a line in that document that states. Um, that states that um, in addition to labeling people the con- conspiracy theorist, they should use their contacts, their elite media contacts, to uh, to push um, to push the marginalization of critics of the Warren Report. And then, of course, we learned during the Church Committee hearings in the mid '70s that the CIA had people at every media organization and at most newspapers. So, you know, when we hear, when we hear that, that old line, um, even now in the media, one has to wonder, and I don't think you have to wonder too, too hard that, uh, that, at 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 the very least, their media organizations are are reticent to even broach difficult topics in a meaningful way, and and at worst, there are still agents working in the media in media who are um, sculpting the truth, you know, sculpting the message. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we, that was in, I, I include that church committee testimony as well as an interview with the, uh, um, the director, the, the president of CBS News, um, from back in the late 50s, early 60s, who said that they had agents and they had a close relationship with the CIA. Yeah. So it's this isn't, you know, we're not researchers, and I'm not making any of this up. It's in the public record. It's in, it's in interviews. It's in congressional testimony. It's right there, but no one pays. No one's touching it. Yeah. No one touches it except for actually people like you, me, and the other researchers. Yeah. Now, how did you get your um? The other producer, John Schoenfeld, I think his name is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How, how did how did you hook up with him? Well, we went to film school together, and okay. uh, he's done a lot of work. And he was in L.A. for years and years. And 
um, working in the in in that business. And uh, when he wanted to raise a family, he moved back to North Carolina, and it's been great. And oh, he was, so you're so you're both in North Carolina together. Yep. Oh, cool. Which is great. Yeah, you guys have barbecues together and stuff. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Our kids are on the same swim team. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. But he, uh, but yeah, it was um, when he moved back and and uh, came aboard. That's that's when I was actually able to finish the film. You know, this was self-funded, and yeah. um, and I, you know, collected whatever money I could from crowdsourcing or little fundraisers. Um, but uh, and then you start having kids and buy a house and have kids and then I'm you're la- I'm literally laughing when you say that because that's exactly what happens you're like you're you're on fire you're in fuego and then then the children get into the picture and it's like it changes everything it, it's not that you don't love them or, but your life just changes yeah it does yeah so you know I tell people that I in a small way I understand the life of the average researcher that's in my film because I didn't mean for this to become a 14 year project. That's basically going to always be part of my life and I will always work in, in some form or fashion. But, you know, over the course of making this film, you know, I fell in love and got married and my, I buried my mom and then I buried my dad and, we had kids and bought a bought a house and dealt with illnesses and recovery and everything and you know life life continues and one of the through lines with the researchers is the the community of researchers them working together in the hopes of finding the truth about about one of the major turning points in American history. Yeah. You know, so it's. Yeah. You're, you're leaving your mark, in other words. Because like yeah. you said, pe- people, you're gonna, people are going to pass away. It's going to go into the memory hole. But you just left a really important mark because people are visual learners. I mean, there's people that like to read and they love all these volumes of books. I'm one of those people I love to read. I also love these films because this, I know, reaches more people. I think it does. Yeah, and it's the medium of the day, whether yeah. we like it or not. So, um, and it's a medium that I just love film in general. Um, yeah. And you so know, you went to yeah you went to film school. You told us you, you, we were moving along. You went to the uh, you quit your job at the record thing, and then you went to film school. Which film school did you go to? The North Carolina School of the Arts. Oh, right on. Okay. Nice. In Winston Salem, nice. excellent conservatory. It's really terrific. Um, yeah, and you know, I started making making nonfiction, and uh, then I started uh, teaching at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, and um, and living life. And the through line with all of this was the searchers. Yeah, you know, no, it's it's so it uh, you can tell it's an act of love. On everybody's part, the people that are in the documentary, that are the searchers, on your part as the film, you know, director, producer, editor, um, 
how long did it take you to edit all this out of curiosity? Because you're like, it looks like you're splicing a lot of, a lot oh, of yeah. stuff together. I mean. Oh yeah. Well, it took years. Um, yeah. because the, the whole time my kids were really young and, um, anyone who's edited video out there will know that you need, you need big chunks of time to be able to learn the footage and, and you have to get momentum going, or at least I do. And, uh, and how do you, I mean, you have kids. How do you maintain momentum when, <laughs> when you have small kids? It's, it's impossible. Yeah. You, you, that's the thing. You've got to be, you just got to be fired up about something, just really fired up about something. In my case, it was, I used to work for a defense contractor and I saw the BS that was going on and I ended up just writing nonstop every night till like two in the morning until I got it out of me. But nonetheless, that's these people, you, you just have it in. You have to just keep driving ahead with this sole purpose of being. And, uh, I, I appreciate that. And a lot of the people that you put in this documentary, it's very interesting, especially, um, that man, Rex Bradford. Who's yeah. at the Mary Farrell Foundation? He just all he does he gets these giant boxes of papers and he scans them and he puts them into the rec. It's that to me seems like so, well, quite frankly, boring. But this is like his reason for being. He just wants to document all this information and have it there for people to research from. Yeah, Rex is a great story because he he kind of illustrates that we can all do something. We're all good at something that can help um, in in any facet of life, and and he's really good at getting information online in a usable fashion. So, you know, all the documents that are being released, um, he scans high speed scanner and gets them online in a searchable way, and. Uh, so that now, you know, it'll be a long time before all six and a half million pages are up. But, um, you know, there, there's an estimated million pages of those released documents that he and his organization single-handedly have gotten online. Yeah. And that's our, that's the history that we can all visit. We can all see, um, our government in crisis and how it reacted, you know? Yeah. Now I've heard people um, say, will president Trump allow this to be released? He has nothing to do with this, right? No, he does. He can, he, he does. Okay. Why? What happens? Well, it can only the JFK act, um, uh, ordered that all documents will be released by October 26th, except in case of, um, executive order. So only Trump could stop the documents. Oh, do you think he's gonna? Well, the community is, is, uh, kind of split. No one really knows. And, um, has, has he been asked this question? Is he, is he prepared um, to release these or? Well, I don't, I think he's been asked in one form or fashion, but it's never really clear. Um, and, you know, one of his early advisors was, uh, and I think he's a current advisor, is Roger Stone, the former 
um, Nixon, Nixon um, staffer um, who helped get Trump elected. And Roger Stone wrote a book about um, uh, his theory of the complicity of LBJ in the in the murder. So, you know, the fact that Roger Stone is an advisor and and uh, believes in a conspiracy, you know, lends one to believe that that he will encourage Trump to release him. But, you know, regardless of how one feels about Trump, uh, the deep state is bigger than just one president. And and we shall see, you know, the right now, the research community is just split. No one yeah. really knows what he's going to do. Yeah. You just said something really, really important. The deep state is larger than the president of the United States. And can you talk about that more specifically about the deep state? I know we talked, touched upon it about the last, for the first hour of the show, but can you talk more about that deep state, which is, of course, the defense intelligence and talk about these different agencies again? Let people know who who Trump is up against if he if he wants to release these things if he's allowed to release these things. Yeah, well the um, um the deep state is not so much a an organization as it is as it is a system. Um, it's a larger institution. There are. Um, um, the you know a, a lot of it comes from the speech that um, that Eisenhower noted, and as he was leaving office, he talked about the military-industrial complex, and um, and the, as John Judge noted all the time, his first draft of that speech noted the military-industrial intelligence complex. And that's what most people um, mean when they say the deep state. So that, you know, some people call it the shadow government. Um, but in the end, there are, there are people who have agendas. There are government institutions and corporate institutions that have different agendas than, than the people of the United States and that's generally referred to as the deep state. Um, yeah, you know, the, I, 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 I asked, Sorry. I, yeah, I asked Cynthia McKinney. She was on, um, another shadow citizen, uh, interview I did. I was with Cynthia McKinney and she appears in your film very briefly. She's talking to, uh, the searchers, and I thought that was really interesting because she, I asked her the same thing. What is the deep state? And she gave me her answer. And, um, it's a, it's a real thing. But is it, this is, uh, what people have a hard time getting, a, a, like, a, their head around is because, you know, you've gone to school and they've taught you about our system of government. Of course, most people forgot about the, um, electoral college, but nonetheless, we, we've been taught yeah. that we have, uh, a hand in our government and in reality it's it's kind of a different thing 
And the people that end up in very high positions, like president, they actually kind of have to answer to this other entity, this this shadow government or this deep state, because it's different. It's a different set of budgeting that's moving through. Talk to Catherine Austin Fitz, um, former assistant housing secretary, and she explained to us how. There's two different budgets. There's one that's on the books, constitutionally approved. You know, the Congress says, okay, we're going to spend this much money. That's great. But then wrapped inside of that with all these little loopholes inside of the laws and the bills that get passed, there's money being funneled to another government. And their budget is now higher than the U.S. GDP. And they are the intelligence stuff and they're dealing with projects that have nothing to do with what normal Americans are even thinking about. And she spends her time researching where this money is coming from or going. She just sees like vast empty spaces on, on her charts of trying to figure out where the money and she, and I don't know if her story has anything to do with it, but she had to get out of Dodge out of DC for a while because she was researching that when she realized that HUD was, laundering money and uh she she kind of pulled through that they put her under investigation for that but nonetheless yes, people you- don't yeah people don't realize that this is a real thing and i that's what i'm trying to get people to understand or t- talk more freely about that there's other elements of our government aside from just elections elections are something to keep i think to keep people occupied and or preoccupied um, than looking deeper at what we're actually living in. So that's just me going on. (laughs) I'm sorry. So why don't you continue to talk? Because I think this is very interesting. Obviously, I'm very interested in it. Yeah, I think I think a a different way to look at it is um, when there, for instance, when when there is so much money at stake in war, for instance, for example, um, when war is so profitable and when, uh, you know, half, what is it? Half of our discretionary dollars go to war. Expect to see more, more of it. When it's that profitable, expect to see more of it. And that's a machine that to stop it is going to take a lot of counter force, you know, um, there, like you said, there are black budgets. The defense intelligence agency has a black budget, meaning no one knows what their budget is and there's no oversight. So what are they doing with that money? Well, they're doing, they're doing what, what they see fits their mandate or the goals that they want to see. And more and more, um, well, it's been this way forever that, that more often than not, the corporate entities, um, involved with, um, within the United States kind of rule where that money goes. So, um, you know, a great example was, um, for instance, in Central and South America, 
the fruit manufacturers, Dole and um, Chiquita Banana, they were major forces. And uh, these small dictatorships, well, quote-unquote dictatorships, would be over um, any country, for instance, that wanted to assert their sovereignty over their own resources, whether it was fruit or oil or minerals, if it countered, if they weren't playing ball with the major corporate military and intelligence services, then they would be branded communist or, or, uh, or terrorists and overthrown. Mm -hmm. And you see that that's just one of the many operations of the deep state. And, um, this is, you know, stuff I've gathered just listening to researchers over the years. Um, on top of reading a lot of books that they've written. I mean, we, we owe so much to the private and independent researchers. Um, the JFK assassination is one of many and, and in fact, they're all kind of tied together. So you can see a through line from from the beginning of American history till now. And specifically with the Kennedy assassination, you can there is a direct through line from um the end of World War II almost to major events like 9/11 and the London bombings and everything else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's all the same organizations. The people may change, but it's the same organizations. Right. So uh, why, in your opinion, because I know nobody can really answer this because you're not inside of there, but from what you've seen and researched and talked to people about, what is the the modus operandi of these people? What is the point? Of, it's just it's just to keep their world their that they've created going the way that they want it to go. Is it possible that what's going on globally as far as money was we were talking about the Secret Service previously, we used to be a branch of the Treasury Department. Is it possible that what's going on with money in the world because it has been based on the US dollar, let's just say all of the fiat currencies in the world right now? basically are based on the U.S. dollar. Um, if that situation is starting to change, would this deep state in the United States change as well, do you think? Or is it, do you think this – am I making sense with this connection between yeah. money and this deep state thing? I, I'm trying to figure out how it will end, if it can end, because it's so ingrained in in the system that we've got. Yeah, well, I tell you, um, when I started, when I started researching this possible film and, um, and the more I read, especially early on, the more depressing it gets because you're made to feel that how can anyone, how can anyone win against forces like this? I mean, even if a small percentage of it is true, it's all is lost. 
you know, that's the way I felt at the very beginning. But during the course of the film and the, um, meeting the people I met, having long conversations, interviewing them, and uh, um, seeing what they've done and what they've achieved over the course of their lives in regards to this, one can't help but leave hopeful and emboldened that um, you can learn about our history. And we're living in a time when it's easy to be cynical. It's I, I'm there all the time, too. But, you know, the researchers believe that knowledge has meaning and they believe in their fellow citizens because in the end, more often than not, we tend to make the right decisions. When people are given, um, you know, there's that old adage, when all people get is dirty water, that's what they'll drink. But if you offer them nice, clean, fresh water, they'll take that every time. And they'll, and demand, it. they'll demand it after that, for sure. Yeah. So I kind of feel like, I kind of feel like, you know, it's spending all this time in the editing room that I have with all these researchers over the years, seeing their faces virtually every day. Um, it gives me a lot of hope because it's just normal people who've been fighting to get documents released. And, and because of their work, our entire history has been rewritten. We, everything we know about the Cuban Missile Crisis is because of them. Everything we know about Kennedy's um, desire to withdraw from Vietnam, we know because of normal people, average people, um, and everything else. And it and it continues with every major um, traumatic event um, that we experience. And so- there are. Re- doing it with 9-11 and right. and beyond. So it, from your vantage point, from your viewpoint, looking at these people doing the searching on JFK stuff, how do you feel about people that are researching 9-11? Well, a lot of, a lot of them are the same people. Okay. Um, I've, you know, John Judge, um, for instance, major major part of my film and um and he was involved early on in the days following 9/11 um uh in investigating and and learning about all the the military um stand down orders and how the military reacted and um he was one of the early early ones researching the movements of the planes, of the fighter jets. Um, so a lot of these people are this are the same people. Yeah, they, they uh, just have it in them to like just search what the, it, they it, they get the sense something just isn't kosher, and they just gotta they gotta search for it, and that's like their gift to the world. They've been hit, put here for that purpose, it seems. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, do you know about? Uh, May Brussel? No. She was um, John Judge's mentor and 
um, an amazing researcher. Um, and she ended up in California and she passed away quite a while ago, but she, she was one of those researchers who would, um, look in a, look at an event and then look at all the press releases and read newspapers and obits and, um, government documents in reverse to, to see trends leading up to major events. And she did that so much that, um, one of the documented, one of the heavily documented cases that she did, she called the, um, mother of Mary Jo Kopechny, um, Ted Kennedy's girlfriend who died when he drove off into the canal. Right. He called her mother before she died saying that the forces that killed, um, JFK and RFK were moving against, against, uh, Teddy and her life was in danger. Oh my gosh. I never heard of that before. That's fan- That's, that's out of control. That's really cool. What's this woman's name? Mary? May Brussel. May Brussel. Okay. And I mean, she, I think she wrote about before, um, the assassination attempt on Reagan. And, uh, in fact, some of the, some of the best research into the Reagan assassination attempt was by John Judge. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And that's why what's really interesting is that I thought this was going to fit into a, a left right paradigm like so many other things. But you'll be at a conference and you'll be sitting with on one side will be the most liberal person you've ever met in your life. And on the other side, the most conservative person you've ever met in your life. And they're in total agreement about um, the Kennedy assassination and having vibrant discussions and arguments about details. And then everyone goes to the bar and has a drink. Um, and John was was as left as it got. But right. yeah. he he was he did the best research into the Reagan assassination attempt because it was a continuation of the, of the deep state trying to enact their policies. And keep going, keep going, keep going. This is awesome. I I can't believe that this may Brussel and John judge that this is, this is good stuff. And I want people honestly go to the website, the searchers com. And watch the um, little promo that they've got up. And you've got to buy the movie or watch it somewhere. Get a f- you could actually do a screening yourself if you got can talk to a local movie theater and you could put up the film. On the website, there's a thing down at the very bottom that you can get involved with showing this film. And I think you should. Um, as I think I've said a million times, I think it's great. And um, I love that. Randy Benson is here talking with us because he's obviously got a, kind of a changed world view than most people because of the work that he's done on this stuff and because of the 
being brought up the way that he was. His dad was in the military and flying around. He gave us that story last hour. Um, is there one thing you want to tell us, like in closing, all about this, Randy? Well, um, I think one one of my goals with the film is to just get it seen, and um, I'm I'm more than welcome if people want to set up screenings. I would love to um, come to your city and take the film and have a Q and A. And <gasps> we uh, come to our city. Just. Get Absolutely, I'll come. Yeah, all right, Providence. Let's let's brace ourselves. I'll talk to somebody in Providence and try to show it there. Be great, Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah. Brace yourself. Oh, this is so exciting. Okay. Yes, people, go to this website, thesearchersfilm.com, and then tell Randy that you heard us here. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you. We'll see you next week on Shadow Citizen. Mm-hmm.